to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Our topic today is the rise of China and what does it mean for Canada. And our speaker is Gordon Holden. We have another session on China this evening at 7 o'clock at the Penny Building downtown. It will not be the same presentation that you've just heard. Gordon will have the opportunity to go into greater detail on some aspects of his presentation that, that you've just heard. So we encourage people that are interested in China to come along to that if they can. Next week's topic here at noon asks the question, at its roots, is racism a generational and social tendency. The speaker is Dr. Linda Manyguns. And then in the evening of next Thursday at Lethbridge Public Library at 7, 7 p.m., there's a special session entitled How Can the BikeMaps.org Project Improve Your Bike Riding Experience? And the speaker is Karen Labury. Then what you've all been waiting for is the announcement of SAGPA's AGM, <laughs> which is on June 29th. Do come along. It's the only time of the year that SAGPA provides a free lunch. So we look forward to seeing you at the AGM. So we'll now move to our Q&A session. Please use the microphone. No questions from the floor. State your name, keep your preamble short, and only one or two questions, please, at least to start with. Now I'd like to invite our speaker, Gordon Holden, back to the podium. Madam, please. Madam, you have the floor. Okay. Uh, Carol Darmody. I woke up this morning listening to BBC and they were interviewing Graham um, Allison who wrote a book, Destiny for War, based on um, going back in the history of civilization. Um, I, I hope I'm pronouncing uh, the Greek philosophers or uh, historical philosophers name right um, through said Adiz, he predicted that when one power is going down, the other power, you know, is ready to take over, there usually is a, a major conflict, like in Athens and Sparta. And so it, the book is hot off the press. I, but, uh, you know, he's trying to maybe balance things. But do you worry that there might be a war as... United States is declining and China's rising? Such an important question and such a difficult one to answer because when I first was posted to our embassy in Beijing, my plan was to predict the future of China. And at the end of that posting, I well, that was, couldn't do that. And then my second posting, I thought, well, at least I understand what's happening at that moment. End of that posting, no, that was still too difficult for me. My last posting, I decided, or my about five, I was going to try and understand what happened in the past, and that isn't easy either. So you're asking me to project. 
But there is that risk. And I think perhaps the best example might be when a rising Germany um, confronted a mature Great Britain with its empire, and that ended very badly, I mean, two world wars, et cetera. And there's always that risk there. An American diplomat, he was head of mission in Taiwan when I was there as head of a Canadian mission, said to me, Gordon, this time it was tension over Taiwan. I said, Gordon, a war between the United States and China would, quote, spoil the 21st century. Spoil the 21st century. And I think that would be accurate. They're talking not just about a naval standoff, but a serious war. Keep in mind that both those countries have intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads on top. I think that's one of the things that makes it a little bit more difficult to say that a war is inevitable. Uh, but there are other tensions, and that's a capacity. I can't see in the future. Uh, we've been fortunate so far. I mean, I don't mean to, to minimize Iraq wars or Korea, etc. But we've known almost unparalleled peace and prosperity since 1945. Uh, that can't go on forever, given the history. The Greek. Greek historians and an American writer at Harvard, uh, he's quite right, that risk is there. The task is for, I guess, the next generation to try and avoid it. There's no automatic, it's not a certainty in my view, not a transmission belt to say there will be a war, um, but it's there's a risk. Absolutely, I do worry about that. It's just not automatic. And in the meantime, we'll entertain the next question. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell, and I have one very sh short one, I think your answer can be quite short, and the other one maybe a little bit more detailed. The um, one with the short one, you were talking about the languages spoken, and you put it as though Chinese is one language uh, now. Are, are they not distinct languages within China? Okay. And the second one, um, you showed about coal imports, and we always hear about the uh, China and and of course and we see about the major pollution because of the uh, high consumption of coal and they're building more coal but on the other hand they're building probably more solar than anywhere else in the world could you try to sure, relate sure. to that where they may be going and when whenever I had to brief a minister on China the first words out of my mouth were always it's complicated um, it's the biggest country on earth by population and, and it's got a long history it's internally very diverse and it is complicated, so it doesn't yield to simple answers. And it's true of language as well. Um, there is a group of Chinese, definitely all the dialects of China are of the same, of Chinese. There are other languages as well, like Tibetan and other minority languages, but various dialects of Chinese are still from the same mother root. Um, but they're not, in some cases, mutually intelligible. Cantonese, for example, and Mandarin, um, speakers of each that didn't know the other dialect would have trouble understanding self or couldn't understand themselves at all. You often see people who fewer and fewer people don't speak Mandarin or Putonghua, but you sometimes see people drawing the characters on their hand uh, because they recognize the same characters. It's a little bit like in the Middle Ages in Europe, um, educated people could write letters to each other in Latin but couldn't speak to each other. They didn't speak the same language but they understood the same text. It's fairly close par parallel to that. About more than half of the people um, in China speak some fairly close variant of Putonghua or, or Mandarin, but there's still hundreds of millions of people who, whose dialects are quite distinct. What's n true now, it wasn't true 50 years ago, say, is that every Chinese child that goes to school, and they've just raised the minimum schooling from nine years to 12, uh, will study in Putonghua. And so people who speak a different language at home um, can still converse with people from other regions, even if not, even if not, not perfectly. The second question, coal, right. 
You're quite right. And here again, it's complicated, and you can have contradictory trends. We had this discussion at this table while we were eating. Uh, China's coal consumption is still rising, but how can that be? But it's dropping as a percentage. It's gone from about 66 to about 60% of the energy is now generated by coal, and it will drop further. That slice, pretty small slice still, that is um, wind and solar, is increasing at a fairly rapid pace, but it's still a pretty narrow band of their overall energy. But China being China, with the second largest economy, almost the largest economy, that growth is extraordinary. So the amount of new solar power and wind power uh, is extraordinary. They're spending, um, some of my table mentioned, and they're correct, over half of the total expenditure on solar and um, wind power is being done in China. Some of the same autonomous region in the far west, Xinjiang, which I mentioned. Xinjiang is the size of Western Europe. And there's parts of the, if you drive between Urumqi and Turfan, which is a oasis down uh, not that far away, maybe three or four hours away by car now, um, desert, desert everywhere. And sea upon sea of wind of uh, w uh, generators. You see them in southern Alberta, of course. Um, but this is desert and, and, and a wild area, wild camels wandering around. And as far as you can see, endless um, w uh, wind turbines. So they can chew gum and walk at the same time. They could not move within 10 years to get rid of coal. It's too important. It's 60% of their energy, and their economy is growing. What they're trying desperately to do is bring down that percentage. And the people in China are complaining about the pollution all the time. It's a big political issue for them. People think it's the Communist Party of China. They don't have free elections, that the government doesn't have to pay attention to public opinion. They do. And they are concerned about that. Uh, when I was living there, I got quite used to the pollution. So much so, when I got back to Ottawa, I feel sort of lightheaded sometimes. I had to lean over to a car exhaust to revive myself. <laughs> That's not quite true. We're going to move on to the, to the next question, please. <laughs> Thank you, Gordon, for a very insightful uh, presentation today. I was lucky enough to just visit China a month ago as mm -hmm. a tourist, and all you say is so true that it's complicated, but it's not a country that we need to trifle with because they're on a roll, and it's a bigger role than we're on, actually. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, though, my question is, did you play a part in Alberta's uh, tour, that trade mission that just went to China? I think we've had two in the last few years. Yeah. And if so, sure. great. There were tell, us, tell us your name before you leave the oh, mic, I'm if you so wouldn't mind. Sorry about that. I'm so nervous. Barb Don't Phillips. Worry. <laughs> well, thank you, Barb. Uh, there have been three, the new government in Alberta, the NDP government, has had three trade missions. Um, the Darren Billis, the Minister of Economic Development and Trade. I went on the first visit with uh, Minister Billis, my deputy, uh, who uh, is, is Chinese, went on the second, and I went, I was invited to go with the Premier on the last delegation in April. Minister Billis was there as well, and I was included in the delegation. I'm a nonpartisan, but they, they wanted some help with things Chinese. The first thing I told the Premier, though, was that there's no such thing as an expert on China. Imagine if someone had come to Canada, they'd been here for five or 10 or even 15 years, and they said, well, they went back home and said, I'm an expert on Canada. Uh, what? An expert on hockey, the coal industry, agriculture, universities? I mean, no one would claim to be an expert on Canada. So how can one person be an expert on China, 5,000 years history, 20% uh, of the world's population. I know a certain amount about certain things, but expert is never a word I would employ. I'm a student of China. 
Go Next ahead. question, please. Yes, thank you. Uh, Terry Shillington here. Gordon, thank you for your presentation. Very uh, enlightening. I'd like to ask you about something that you didn't comment on, but I'm trying to understand the growing tension between Canada and the United States about the Trudeau government's willingness uh, to see sale of high-tech industries to China, which the Americans say is passing on state secrets and threatening American security and and uh, the Globe and Mail uh, uh, reflects critically on. Can you help us understand um, uh, some of the implications of that? Sure. And, and China will pose these complicated questions that defy easy solution to us increasingly, and investment is one of them. Uh, the particular sale of a, of a high-tech company uh, to China, which was a ch company that was in financial trouble, might well have gone bankrupt, but the tricky issue of national security issues, is this, is, a, is this a technology which will strengthen the Chinese military or their security forces? It's a tough issue. The previous government in Ottawa, um, I was nonpartisan. I worked in that government simply because, actually, I worked for every prime minister since Trudeau's father until uh, Prime Minister Harper, um, whichever party was in power, liberals and conservatives, it made no difference. Uh, that particular deal was turned down, and then the current government has approved it. It's a judgmental issue. There's something called the Canada Investment Act, and under that, it includes provisions for national security. But when you get into the small details, it's very tough sometimes to know, to weigh the advantages versus the disadvantages. And the Americans um, tend to be very conservative. They've got the most open economy in the world when it comes to foreign investment. But the only provision they take account of is national security. We've got a whole bunch of provisions, communications, certain sectors are, are closed off. It's very hard for me to say yay or nay as to whether it's a hazard. This is a highly technical analysis, but you're quite right. The Americans have, are critical of that, and it's a big issue for us because whatever importance China will have for us in the future, the U.S. market is going to continue to be um, the most market, important market for us. I just don't think we should have just one market. It's a bit like being, having a store with only one customer. But we do need to pay attention to what they're saying, and particularly when it comes to national security, because we have two defense treaties with the United States, and they are security guarantors. So when the Americans say to us, we don't like this on security grounds, if I were still in government, I'd listen very carefully to what they're saying, because there are certainly are potential risks. Some may say, well, some conclusions are exaggerated. Some will say, no, that's perfectly valid. I don't know enough about the technology in question to make that, it, it takes a scientist, uh, I would argue, uh, or a defense expert, but probably both, to determine whether risk is significant or not. And these issues are going to come up more and more often. Back in 1970, when we established relations under Trudeau's father, the relationship was all rosy and positive, but there's no substance. I mean, the trade was ridiculously low. Uh, very few delegations. It was there, just like a bright bauble on a Christmas tree, but there's no meaning to it. As it becomes really important, um, then these issues are going to keep coming up, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's investment, positive and negative ones at the same time. For all of our national existence, say for 500 years since there was a colonies in North America of either Britain or France, and right through 150 years, the leading country has always been a country that had a closely, culture which was close to ours, a political system rather close to ours, France, Britain, United States. Now our situation with the leading economy in the world will be a country that has a very different political system and a very different worldview. We've never been in that situation before, and that's what's going to be challenging about the 21st century. So I'm skirting that a little bit because I don't know the, the really detailed technology, but you could make a case either way. The next question, please. My name is Van Christou. 
thank you so much, uh, Professor Holden, for coming to this forum and bringing with you this uh, rich background of information that you, that you have acquired over the years. It seems to me that in your, in your talk today, the thing that stood out most for me was the d difference in, in your graphs between the amount of money in relation to other expenditures in China that's going into their defensive program, mm -hmm. into munitions. Um, the, the, the thing that stood out in that whole scene was the tremendous expansion of their transportation. Uh, these high-speed trains, uh, the Silk Route train, uh, that's building bridges in the world, uh, not walls. And uh, it seems to me that uh, the uh, history that's going on south of the border here, where walls are emphasized more than, than, than bridges, and where they're, they're spending such an enormous amount planning to spend this enormous amount on building up their military, which is already the biggest in the world. Um, don't you think, the qu my question is, don't you think that if this progresses, America is just quickly bankrupting themselves, not only uh, intellectually and in terms of, of, of outlook and ethics, but also, and, but also monetarily. Well, thank you for the compliment first. Um, I would agree with their basic thesis, and I think that's what happened to the Soviet Union. They got trapped in an unsustainable uh, pattern of uh, military expenditure. I think President Reagan actually took them down that path of basically making them spend themselves out of existence, because uh, the Soviet economy was very weak, and Deng Xiaoping who had the opportunity to meet on a few occasions, uh, took a different view. His four modernizations, defense was last of the four. And I think he, he saw what happened in the Soviet Union, didn't want it to happen again. There's no shortage of history, Spaniards, French, um, uh, who spent themselves, um, bankrupted themselves basically with military expenditures without an economy to, to withstand it. The Chinese, I think, when they want, they want a strong military, they are, they've had a very, mixed history with no shortage of invasions, et cetera. And they invented walls. I mean, but they are, we saw those rail and road, like the emphasis is on infrastructure. And that, I, I would like to write the book and thinking about how to tackle it, but I'd like to write the book about the five things that China could teach us and the five things that we could teach them. One of the things they could teach us is infrastructure. I paced those docks and rail yards in the 1990s and I thought, this dock is three kilometers long. There's no way in any way that this is, can be sustained or reasonable. They're overexpending. Well, you go to those docks now, they're absolutely full of ships and containers, and all of that was reasonable. I don't like to criticize my own province, but in, we're not in Edmonton, but in my city, containers, all over, they call themselves inland ports. Containers, there's a, a, a private trucking company has maybe a couple hundred containers. CN is theirs, CP is theirs. Higgly-piggly all over the landscape. Some of the trains back up onto the under the major highway goes to Calgary. Uh, we haven't invested in infrastructure. I'm a, I believe in the free market, but there is a role for government. I think what the Chinese got right uh, was let private industry grow, and they have done that, but there's a role for government in creating the infrastructure for growth. You've got to get it right. You don't want to build uh, white elephants and useless infrastructure, but if you get it right, um, I think you set the, the stage for prosperity. There's not a city in China that doesn't have a well-developed transportation plan that includes economic linkages, rail, if they're the port, airports. Um, and they set that infrastructure, they pay for it out of tax money, 
and then the, the private industry creates the industries that fill those containers. It's not a bad formula. The things they do wrong, the mistakes they make, but they've got a lot right. Next question, please. My name is Graham Greenlee. As we all know, we live on a finite planet. What will China do after the world runs out of raw materials? Good Mr. question. Mr. Clairvoyant. Mr. Again, asking me to project into the future, and I just said, I, I learned bitterly that I had trouble even understanding the past. So it's like, I'm just a, don't go to the bank with this one. I actually think that there's a lot of raw materials still left in the world, and there's a lot of ways we can produce substitutes for them. Where my concern is more just the lack of resources, it's the environmental impact of everybody in the world, or everybody in China, having a lifestyle equivalent to North America. Uh, their economy is rising fast, but if they, something like 15% of the Chinese population has an automobile now, um, if that number, you get the number, I think there's more than one car per, per Albertan, I suspect, um, maybe not quite that many, but there's a, probably 1.5 per family. If you get to those levels in China, uh, the uh, pollution dimensions, even just the cost of building electric cars with all of the heavy metals and the, the rare earths associated with that, there are environmental concerns. Um, but it's difficult for me to say, how can we as Canadians, because we live very well and burn energy more prodigiously than almost any other country on earth, say you Chinese cannot do so. I think there's a lot of raw materials left there, but I still think there's a, a world where everybody lives at our standard will be a world that has uh, huge environmental concerns. The problem is as well, before countries reach the point where they start cleaning up, uh, they say to us, well look, you've been polluting like mad for 150 years, or for 100 years, uh, why shouldn't we? Because we want to get rich quickly and we don't want to constrain ourselves. So try and tell India that they shouldn't be burning more coal. They're burning more coal every year and they're not going to stop. So whether it's a shortage of materials or just the environmental effects of just so many people trying to become wealthy at the same time. I've got five kids and I, I do worry about the world that they'll live in, whether it'll be peaceful enough and clean enough. So I have those concerns, absolutely. I just can't really answer your question well enough because I've had that very bad experience of not being able to predict events. Hi, Next name, question, please. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for coming back to SACPA, Gordon. Uh, I'm torn between asking about North Korea and, f and agricultural products, but uh, being a former potato farmer, I'm going to ask you about the latter. Uh, agricultural production in Canada is, uh, has, is looking for export markets and uh, China is obviously uh, uh, probably going to be looking for import of agricultural products. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the opportunities in that regard? Sure. That's a very important question. It's a bread and butter question for Alberta. Already, China's the number one importer of canola. If Chinese stopped buying canola, which was at risk because of this black leg, as you know, uh, which is a, a contaminant in, uh, in uh, canola, my knowledge base stops right there. Um, but uh, that would be disastrous for the, for the canola industry in our country. Uh, we produce a lot of beef, but we're still stuck on this BSE problem in China. We get Some of our beef gets in, but not enough. And we think that those claims are specious. They're not based on real science. We're exporting some pork. One ace in the hole that we have is that the Chinese don't trust their own food system. There have been some terrible... Um, scandals of things like melanin. Um, I actually grew quite dependent on melanin. I have to have it in my diet every day. I know that's not true. 
But the things were contaminated oils that were being recycled from into human use for a second time. And the it's a bit exaggerated, I think, sometimes because I fed my family. Our kids grew up in living in China on Chinese food, and nobody got sick. At least no more often than anywhere else. But Chinese are are worried about this. When I go to Beijing, I often carry my suitcase, cans of milk powder, um, to give to Chinese friends because they don't trust. Even when it comes in, it said made in, in New Zealand, they worry that it could be counterfeit, not real. I also know of a family, and this isn't rare, lives in Beijing, they're quite affluent, and the four families have gotten together and they, they hired a farmer who lives outside of Beijing, in Hebei province, to grow food for their families. No, no fertilizers, no pesticides, and I actually think those are both okay and reason. And they drive out, they turn driving out on the weekend to get the food that they think is safer. So there's an opportunity, and our premier, when she was in China, was speaking about this without making the Chinese feel badly. If we could get more products in there, which isn't always easy, uh, that have a Canadian flag on them, that says made, grown, packaged, grown, manufactured, and packaged in Alberta, in China, um, we, could, uh, we could do better. But some of the challenges still remain, and maybe a free trade agreement, we can get some of these solved, I don't know. But there's a factory in, in Edmonton called Suwon. It manufactures uh, pox stickers and uh, various types of sausages and, uh, uh, and pasta items with meat inside. Alberta grain, Alberta pork, Alberta beef, and it sells them in Canada and the United States and does well. And that's a $20 million factory, brand new, employs a lot of Albertans, of Edmontonians. Um, but the manager there told me if he could get his product without problem into China, he could build a $200 million factory. But we can't yet do that because the local province in this case, Shandong has restrictions on imports that make it difficult because they don't want to hurt their own domestic production. And hopefully, maybe with a free trade agreement, we'll be able to get those problems solved. The demand is huge. They want safe food. They've got the money to buy really good food products. And we've got some of the best products on earth. Getting there is tough. And, um, but growing at 7%, um, that, that capacity and that desire, that Depends how you count the numbers. Four to six hundred million people in the middle class in China, uh, they, they can afford to buy good stuff and they'll pay the price for safety and for quality for their kids, like any of us would, if we were worried about the safety of the food. I'm going to catch you off there, Gordon, sure. I'm afraid, so that we can entertain our last question. Madam, uh, you have the yeah. floor. Mary Shillington, thank you, Gordon, for not only for your talk, but also for your uh, detailed answers to the questions. Uh, you said that uh, China doesn't have any immigrants. Uh, that kind of spoke to my uh, interest since I've been involved in a, with a Syrian refugee family here. Um, can you say more about that? And I know you're not looking too far into the future or prophesizing what's going to happen in the future, but as their population ages, will they be more open, perhaps? Okay, those two. Yeah, those are, that's a very good question. Well. China doesn't have immigration. Of course, that's technically not true because there's probably in Beijing alone, the city of 20 million, there's probably a couple hundred thousand foreigners are there. They have permanent residence status, but they don't have citizenship, and they are, their papers have to be renewed periodically. Uh, it's just it's virtually impossible to emigrate to China, with the exception unless you are ethnically Chinese, and there's an exception made. Will they change? I'm skeptical about that because I look at Japan, uh, a place that is weighed up that curve. Recall that hockey graph style, shape graph that showed the aging population. Well, Japan's already at the top end of that, and they allow a few million people to come in on visas, long-term work visas, and some of them have actually gotten 
permanent resident status and some have gotten Chinese citizenship, but the numbers of foreigners, non-Chinese foreigners who have achieved Chinese citizenship, as far as I can tell, under 100. Under 100. So they basically don't accept immigration per se, with the important exception of the, if you're of a Chinese origin. Um, and so exceptional, exceptional, exceptional. I don't think that'll change. I think what they're, what they're going to try and manage with that aging population is robotizing. Japan is miles ahead in that regard. Um, I went to an exhibition in October in Japan where there was a, uh, a thinking robot after a fashion. You could ask her questions that could not have been programmed. I asked her things like, are you happy? And, and uh, um, what did you have for dinner? Well, I don't eat dinner, I'm a robot. Uh, how old are you? I'm two years old, so I made by. There's a, capaci a beginning of a thinking capacity there. And Japan is way ahead of anywhere else in the world. China wants to be right up there. And those factories that you go to, that are line upon line of line of automation, I think that's how they think they can solve the population crisis. The jury's out whether they can manage that or not. We've got the same challenges here in this country. But it's curious, we're, we're facing the problem of aging population, a shrinking but a labor force participation. Because of that, at the same time, there's a lot of unemployment. And so they have the same issue in China. There's uh, 15 million people, if you count both universities and, and technical schools, that come out of those every year in China. And China sometimes has difficulty jo generating jobs for all of those people. So mass immigration, I don't think it's in the cards, but they face challenges that are very severe nonetheless. Thank you, Gordon. Well, that concludes today's session. Thank you, Gordon, for coming.